Fire and Bones podcast. I'm Michael Crosswhite, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I am Nathan Loudon, the pastor of Millwood Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. Follow the podcast, rate it. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Uh, the whole time, I, I've been convinced it's true because I became convinced of uh, what's, I guess, popular, popularly known as Calvinism um, uh, before I ever knew any, any you know, public teachers out there were Calvinists. I've, I've literally never sat under a Calvinist pastor. Um, so my whole life growing up from the time I was, you know, four, five, six years old, you know, what I was growing to know to be true of the scriptures was, and I didn't even know it was called Calvinism. I just thought it was the Bible. You know, I didn't learn till much later on after, long after I was a Calvinist, that that's called Calvinism, that it's called Reformed theology, that it's, um, so, and that, that there were other pastors out there that believed this. So I, I grew up in a, you might say a little community, um, of maybe some Puritans that, <laughs> that, um, that believed, that believed and taught this. And, you know, so I, I didn't really know there was, there was a bunch of people that believed that. Mm-hmm. What about you? I think I became a Calvinist the day I became a Christian when I was seven years old. And you mean before the foundation n- of the world? Just kidding. Wow. That was wow. <laughs> you you thought that and then you said it out loud. You just you know. It was an obvious uh, I'll, I'll say I'll say this. I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but it doesn't matter. But I was looking at my wife last night. We we're just speaking about age really quickly. And we're interviewing candidates for associate pastor. And, and one of them is, he's not that young, but I was doing the math and I'm like, he's exact, he's pretty much exactly in between me and my daughter's age. Like he's the same years apart from my daughter as he is from my age. Let that, just let it sink in. So, you know, it wasn't, wasn't too far from foundations of the world, I guess. But (laughs) I'm not even sure I'm following what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm just saying the guy so I'm 40 my daughter's 12 he's right in the middle he's almost as close to her age closer to her age than he is to mine now so were you fascinated by that because you were like I I just I just did math babe I just well I was happy about that for one <laughs> but you know <laughs> two two I just realized you know this this dude's closer to being a child to me than he is to being an adult in terms of years and experience and, and those things. Yeah. Not to, not to belittle anybody who's in their 20s, I'm just saying. Yeah. Anyway, when I became a Christian at 7, I from the time I heard the gospel preached on a Sunday morning, I was in the second pew in Sadler Baptist Church, I'd heard the gospel many times, heard the gospel at home, heard the gospel at church, Sunday school, all kinds of, you know, everywhere, and I, my dad was a pastor, and I, hearing the gospel preached about Christ crucified for my sin, the uh, I I believed. I just uh, the spirit worked in my heart and my mind, 
and showed me that I'm a sinner and that I need Christ's forgiveness. This, this is not this is not just kind of a, a religion. This is not something our family does. We don't just kind of go to church, but that I have sinned against God. Christ died for me, and that I need to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I, and I believed. I just, I don't know how to explain it, except when I heard it, I just thought, I believe this, and I believe it for me. And uh, by by no stretch have I just lived a, a straight line of growth and maturity as a Christian. But I look back and I think I didn't just make a decision that day. I, I did go forward at the end of the service and make my profession known. But something happened to me. And I just knew that it, it wasn't the preacher. It wasn't me. It, it was the gospel itself. And it was the Spirit of God in my chest that helped me believe so when I when I began to hear about Calvinism and about God's sovereignty and election, it didn't sound strange to me. You know, I didn't grow up in a church that was heavy on that or taught that. Um, I didn't grow up in Calvinistic circles. Which, um, when I say I didn't, I've never sat under a Calvinist pastor. One of the pastors that I sat under was your dad. And yeah, and he's not I don't a, think he, he would describe him himself Cal- as Calvinist, as far as I know. No. At least back then, he certainly wouldn't have. I don't know if he would now. No, yeah, ex- exactly, and that's my point. And not to say it was unfaithful, but that just—it just wasn't even a thing. It, it wasn't even on the radar. It was there wasn't even a rejection of Calvinism. It was uh, just a simpler faithful ministry. So, I, I just think when I heard it for the first time, it didn't sound strange to me. It it registered with with my experience, uh, and so before I even got longer and deeper into the the Bible and into the theology of it. It just, it didn't sound strange. It felt normal. I just thought, yeah, well, I just thought that's the common experience, and that's the common understanding of becoming a Christian, is thanking God that my eyes were opened when they used to be closed. Thanking God that I, I was dead and faithless and, and blind, and now I felt I'm alive. I see, and I believe, and it just wasn't a strange category. And so I, I think for me, when I hear rejections of Calvinism, my first thought isn't, well, you, you choose to reject this, uh, this kind of highfalutin seminary-level idea of theology and these deep, these deep doctrines that you know, only, only a select few of the noblest Bible studiers and the uh, most intellectual people you can imagine, they, they're the ones who really wrestle with things, these things and get them, but... But no, my first question is, how do you understand salvation? How do you understand how the gospel works? How do you understand the work of the Spirit? How do you understand being dead? How do you understand being brought to life? How do you understand you were blind uh, uh, by, by, by Satan in First uh, Corinthians chapter 4? How do you, how do you like, what, what do you think salvation is? Uh, is kind of my first question. Uh, does, does that make sense? Yeah. Right? That, that's, it's not just kind of a, th- a big high theology, but it's, it's, pretty close to what we think happens when people become a Christian. Well, and I probably steer clear of the term Calvinism, not really because I'm ashamed of the term Calvinism, but just because it sort of gives the gives the impression that here's a particular idea I prescribe to. I'm a Christian, and I read the Bible, and I'm con- I could, you know, check all the boxes of tulip which we should probably define in just a second um but more than that I, to me all of this is just 
it makes sense of the text of Scripture. And the reality of what I'm trying to do more than anything else uh, is not be a Calvinist. It's not be Reformed. It's not, you know, be Arminian or not be whatever, but to just be faithful to the Scriptures. And if there are particular streams of thought that help make sense of the passages of Scripture that we have in front of us, they help us to, to understand them better, then mm-hmm. I am for that. And mm-hmm. what, to me, makes the most sense of the broad swaths of Scripture that is before us, the, the, the lens that I think helps me to interpret it the best and the most, uh, the closest to the author's intent is that stream of thought. Um, so I think, though, it should be, we should probably define what we mean when we say Calvinism and then, mm-hmm. like, unpack that a little bit more, shouldn't we? So, like, wh- what is, yeah. when you, you've said tulip, what is tulip? Tulip is those five doc. well, first of all, people uh, historically, just really quickly, people think it's all of John Calvin's teachings, and it is. Uh, John John Calvin, I think, would have held to these, but it's it was really more fully developed by Theodore Beza, who was a protege of Calvin's, a student of his, in the kind of finer debates that developed in the generation after the first reformers. Uh, these questions about salvation came up, and Theodore Beza kind of collected and and put his what his own convictions and and Calvin's into uh, what began to be uh, you know summarized to to be what we know as Calvinism. Um, so it's kind of a, a second generation succinct understanding of uh, the doctrine of salvation, how someone becomes a Christian. Today we think of it in tulip, the T refers to total depravity. You are entirely depraved. You are you're, you, you, you cannot exude faith on your own. You, you cannot become a Christian. You cannot come back from the dead. You, you, you can't awaken to spiritual life on your own, total depravity. You cannot but sin. Uh, you is unconditional election, uh, that there is uh, uh, God's choosing of his people, of his saints in all history and time, is of God's privilege, of God's sovereignty. Oh, being limited atonement, this is where, this is where so often people get the, the main hiccup, is that Christ's blood is uh, sufficient for all but efficient. Some would say sufficient for all but efficient uh, for the saints only applied to the church. Uh, the eye is irresistible grace, that this is how God works and woos and pulls people toward salvation by his spirit. The P being perseverance of the saints, um, the uh, belief and understanding that those who are in Christ are secure uh, forever in Christ, that our, our hope, our inheritance is sure for those who have the Spirit and those who are in Christ. That's an overgeneralization. Some people might not even think that was a totally accurate view. Yeah. I think it's a fairly introductory level of what those letters, uh, the, the doctrines of those letters represent. You think? Yeah, yeah and, I, and I think, too, it should be noted what Calvin sees himself doing and what the reformers mm. see themselves doing is going back to Augustine, uh, a lot uh-huh. of the early earlier church fathers uh-huh. and uh, theologians, mm-hmm. and calling uh-huh. back to some of their um, finer points of of theology that 
the church has veered from. And mm-hmm. they're calling back to this era, and they're saying, we need to reform the church. Not form the church, but reform the church. So a lot of what comes out mm-hmm. of that becomes known as Reformation theology or Reformed theology. And um, and so what it should be noted that Calvin's not creating anything new. He doesn't see himself creating anything new. He sees himself mm-hmm. calling back to a for a bygone era, where they they had they had wrestled with theology in a correct way, and taught it correctly, and that the mm-hmm. Catholic Church and many that are are preaching and teaching now have strayed from that, and he's reforming. He and Martin Luther and several others mm-hmm. are calling back to that era of ch- the Church Fathers and mm-hmm. sort of putting that forward and saying that this is what's right, and so. When we say we're, you know, we believe in Reformed theology or that we're Calvinist, that that should be qualified to say it didn't start in the 15, 16, 1700s, but this is this is going back, you know, into the early church era, three, four hundreds, where some mm-hmm. of this stuff is articulated. Right. Yeah, and I think too, I think one of the reasons so many people go back and use and have and have if you're going to do theology in any historical level. You have to just think through the through the lens that, for the most part, the reformers were dealing with scripture in the original languages and then in their own languages in, in a significant way that had not been done for hundreds of years on a hot, on a on a strong theological level. That that these guys were they they weren't choosing camps; they were holding Bibles and interpreting. Scripture, uh, uh, with uh, on a on a high academic level for Martin Luther for sure, uh, you know, understanding and Calvin as well, understanding the the original languages and reading them and interpreting them and basing their thinking on on the Scripture and not on kind of what's been handed down. So I think that's one reason historically we have to wrestle with what they came up with and what what they thought about as they as they read through the Bible. And it certainly accords all the way back to guys like uh, Augustine and Ignatius and Irenaeus and and other early church fathers who seem to kind of have been saying some of the same things early on. They got lost until the Reformation. Uh, And I think that's really helpful for me is looking historically. I don't feel like you, you know, pick pick a cat, pick a side on this debate. there's, there's actually a historical vein. Of course, everyone who has a doctrine, even dispensationalists, everyone wants to go back to Augustine. <laughs> Every, everybody right. wants to claim the old, the old fathers are their sure. friends. Sure. Um, but there's a pretty clear line of doctrinal teaching from, uh, I would say, the Bible, early church fathers, reformers, and what we understand, generally speaking, in Reformed theology today. It's, it's actually kind of the the main vein it's not kind of this doctrine that rose up a hundred years ago and a bunch of guys said let's create calvinism or even calvin himself uh that there's some historical faithfulness there's a a historical line that runs through there that i I think gives and lends some credibility that you at least have to consider yeah yeah and and i think too largely what we're what we're talking about in in terms of Calvinism reading the scriptures is is really asking the question where does your salvation begin mm-hmm. and 
I think that's that's a really crucial question to wrestle with. The five points aside, I really think it's helpful to just start asking the questions of how did I come to be saved and what is salvation? What is it exactly? Mm-hmm. Uh, what mm-hmm. happens in salvation? How did I come to be here? And some are going to answer that question by saying, well, I was presented the gospel and I mm-hmm. I believed it like like you right. did. I mean, you, you said, you know, mm-hmm. I was sitting there and I heard the gospel that I'd heard many times and I believed it. And so you you have that experience of salvation that I think all of us that are that would call ourselves Christians or that are saved would would say happened to us. We and it may be over a period of time for me it was over a period of time um that I really didn't remember a time when I wasn't a Christian, when I didn't believe this, but I did realize right. that there was a point where well, I gotta, I gotta figure something out. I gotta decide something. You know, I'm gonna make a mm-hmm. commitment. You know, and uh, or at least I felt that way. And so, you know, I think for all of us, when we when we think about, sorry, that was me. Uh, <laughs> when we when we when we think about. Um, our own salvation. That's how we think about it, don't we? It was presented to right. us. Um, we but, heard he, it. But let me ask you: choice. is that is it entirely? Is it wrong? Like I don't, I don't want to. I don't think we ought to try. And we're definitely we we're not trying. I don't think we're even trying to say implicitly that you shouldn't think that way. That if people think simply about my faith, I heard the gospel. I I, I chose to believe. Uh, to use that phrase, are we are we saying that's entirely wrong, or it might depend on the person what they mean by that. Well, I mean, because I don't, I don't, I want to be careful. Often Calvinists get known, unfortunately, for kind of squelching simple faith and simple understanding, and coming in and kind of saying, oh, "You don't, you don't understand it enough to really appreciate it." I'm like, you can, you can have a genuine faith in Christ and not know all of the doctrines. I mean, we see that in the New Testament as well. People become Christians; they continue to learn. The first, you know, the church in Corinth, they became Christians, and Paul apparently had to teach them that the resurrection actually did happen, and that there is such thing as resurrection. So I hold a category in my mind that being a Christian doesn't mean being complete theologically. Uh, certainly, you or I are not. Right, so right. You're, and, and, you're not saying that, like, if you if you think that way, you haven't kind of gotten where you're supposed to go yet. No, I'm quite, quite the opposite. I'm saying that is our experience. And so mm-hmm. I think there's, there's a big, you know, argument in a lot of churches over this over this doctrine but i think to one degree not every degree but to one degree this the people the proponent the proponents of each side are really talking past each other and they're talking about two different things one is is talking about well what did i experience i heard the gospel and i believed it and whatever mm-hmm. i did after that i went you know to the pastor and in, in some way was you know, put in, in the waters of baptism and, and was baptized. And uh-huh. so, you know, I, I, I chose to believe and I would say to one degree, yeah, that that's right. I mean, you did, you did do that. There was a, a thought in your head. This is true. I believe this. And you made a decision to follow Christ. And I really think to, to, you know, in the, in the the biggest sense, we're not arguing against that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm saying, yeah, you you did. 
The question that we're asking is what happened though? If we were to analyze mm-hmm. the text of scripture, how does God describe what happened to you? Uh-huh. And he doesn't describe it in those terms. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth not just describing our salvation as how we perceived it, but I think it's really important since the Bible says it to go into the words of scripture and say, this is how the Bible describes your salvation. I get it that you describe your salvation as hearing the gospel and choosing to believe and follow Christ. I'm fine with that. But how does the Lord describe it? And it's worth investigating those details because that Mm -hmm. actually not only helps us understand scripture, helps us understand Old Testament prophecy, helps us understand the whole breadth of the word that's in front of us because it's really into the largest in the largest sense written from God's perspective to us you know and yep. it's helpful for us as his people to hear things from his point of view um, right and and that's really what the Bible is and so it's we, we to study it to understand it we have to not only be able to wrestle with how we perceived our own salvation but really how God perceived our own salvation and I think that's helpful mm-hmm. so yeah, and I think, and I think for me too. Like, just to be clear, like, um, if you know Calvinism well, I think you'll hear it in my preaching. If you don't know what Calvinism is, you're not going to hear me arguing for Calvinism from the pulpit on Sundays. You're not going to learn about Calvinism. Like, maybe, maybe every now and then, I'll bring it up as a helpful part of the kind of conversation, but. Uh, you're going to hear the tenets of that theology preached, but it's not trying to invite people into a camp. Like, I've had so many conversations with people about sovereignty and election and salvation, scriptural word, biblical words, right? And and we're talking about Calvinism and Arminianism, but they don't they don't know it in those terms, right? It, it, it comes up all the time, happens all the time, uh, and... And so I think that's just one important thing to say here. You know, neither of us are saying, like, we're trying to, uh, you know, we, we want people in Calvinism. But when you read the Bible, it kind of comes to the surface. You get, you get painted into a theological corner where you, you, can't, you can't do anything but say, man, this is the case. This is, this is how salvation happens. That fair? Yeah, I mean, and the same would be for me. I think there have been a number of times where I've just said from the pulpit, I'm a Calvinist. You know, I don't have, uh-huh. and I've, but I've followed that up by saying, I don't have a problem with you if you're not. Um, right. I Now, I, depending on where you land, I, I probably think you're wrong, but mm-hmm. and my intention would be to present the best argument for the sovereignty of God that I can from the scriptures. Mm-hmm. But it's not a requirement that you be a Calvinist to join our church. Yes. We're going to see some things differently. I get that Mm -hmm. we are. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's sometimes some major differences, but I think they're not Mm -hmm. necessarily differences that are so vast that we can't overcome them and be in the same church body, you know, and nor Mm -hmm. would it be a requirement to join, to join our church as I, I think it probably is in some camps either to be Arminian or to be Calvinist. Um, but you know, I think, uh, it's, it's, uh, basically what I'm going to do is not necessarily lay out the tenets of Calvinism. I'm going to 
exegete the scriptures. I'm going to take the, the word of God and just put it before people and say, this is what this means. How can you do yeah. anything other than that? And so I think that's, yeah. you know, that's kind of the importance as we're standing behind the pulpit to, to really, I'm just preaching the word of God and I want to lay it out there in as clear and as in a concise manner that I can. And I think if you follow the thoughts of scripture, the trail that it's pointing you down, that you're going to mm-hmm. end up here too. Um, mm-hmm. Just plain Absolutely. Like I, I have not had a ton of conversations that I can remember about Calvinism, although people bring that up, but I've had a ton of conversations about Ephesians 1, tons of conversations about that what, what Paul means by security or insecurity of the saints in Colossians 1. Right. Right. Tons of conversations about uh, how God of this age, Satan, can blind the mind of unbelievers in Second Corinthians 4. Tons of conversations about how God can harden uh, the hearts and uh, harden whomever he will and soften whomever he will in Romans chapter 9. And God's sovereignty, you know, being dead, Ephesians 2. The, I've had those conversations thousands. I think I could say thousands. I don't know, but um, countless times sure. over the years, those those comes up. And when questions come up, you go to those passages, and we talk about the Bible. I don't say, well, you know, we got this is a you question. This is an unconditional election question. Uh, so let me talk to you about. I mean, right then we've just begun to use language that partially isn't even in the Bible. Right. And so they have to make a leap to even understand the terms, and then it's you get attached to. Um, you know, well, this is Nathan's understanding or someone else's understanding of the Bible, rather than just read the Bible. Right. And if you can't, if you can't see it there, you ought to reject it when I preach it in the pulpit. Right. If you can't see it in Scripture, uh, any sermon, it yeah, it shouldn't be there. Yeah. Hey, um, yeah. What What do you think about? Um, you know, resources. Do you Do you have books that you recommend people read? Do you have anything on that you're like, you know, if you if you are wanting to go down that trail and think about this specifically, do you have books that you recommend? Or do you typically just have a biblical conversation with anyone who's interested? I mean, honestly, like, yes, there are billions of books, great resources, things <laughs> that, you know, would be fantastic for you to read. Plenty of guys who want to write books on Calvinism in right. the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, so you're in no shortage of books, and, and I think a lot of people know that there are resources. Obviously, Piper, Packer, to, you, you can't really go wrong. There's a book by uh, Mark Dever in my place, Condemned He Stood, um, that's really mm-hmm. helpful. Um, you know, lots of, you know, I think Piper wrote a book called Five Points, which is basically going through Calvinism mm-hmm. tulip, um, yeah. which is really helpful. I've given that to people, but um, I think it's better. Uh, maybe not better, but it, it, it's well, yeah, it's better um, to really understand the story of Scripture and understand salvation. Mm-hmm. Like, as helpful as I think Ephesians one, the passages you mentioned, Ephesians one, and um, several of those, you know, passages you laid out, as helpful as I think they are. I think it's more helpful even to go into the Old Testament prophets and to say, mm-hmm. what is, what is, how, how does God describe what he's about to do in the new covenant? And, and what is the problem with Israel 
at the at the moment when he says when when they're going into captivity. So I'm thinking mm-hmm. Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah. What what is the problem, and what is he? How is he proposing to remedy it? And I think you know. So Jeremiah, one of the passages that I think is the most pivotal for me in understanding is not only from Jeremiah 31, where he just starts to describe the the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31, and following. But then in the next chapter, in um, 32, he says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make mm-hmm. with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away for, or turn from me. Um, so that this is the problem, right, in Israel, mm-hmm. is the hardness mm-hmm. of heart, that no matter what he does, no matter how he punishes them, no matter how he corrects them, the fall has so poisoned their heart that it is hardened against them. And the mm-hmm. only fix is for him to actually change their heart. Mm-hmm. Right, to actually turn it. Mm-hmm. Right. Wouldn't you just yep. wouldn't you say that's that's the description right there? Both of total yeah. depravity and unconditional election. Yep. And you know <laughs> this is gonna feel like a Jesus juke, but it's not. I'm at, I'm going even farther back Come than on, you man. went. Come on. To man. say you, when you go back to Genesis, that's the problem. Right? Yeah. Sin, we we fell into sin and I think one of the things the Old Testament is showing in the history of Israel is God chose this people. He gave them the commands in Moses. He gave them every earthly blessing and opportunity and protection and covenant that he could give them in an earthly manner, a a copy, a version of the heavenly things in the temple and the tabernacle in his presence. And they still could not follow him. They still could not be faithful. They still could not choose him. They still chose idols. Yeah. So would they you would you say him. then? Would you say then? Because I've described it this way, and I, I want to see if this is yeah. if this is helpful or harmful, and maybe I should stop yeah. using it. But that the Old Testament is really exploring the effects of the fall. This is how the fall has so permeated our hearts that here we're looking at a test case with Israel. They can't follow God. Would you say that's fair? Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. I definitely agree. And it's the I've been thinking a lot. And I'm in Revelation. It talks a lot about the temple, the tabernacle, a lot of allusions to in quotes from uh, Israel in the Old Testament. We're kind of it's kind of holographic in the sense that we're trying to show all those things were actually pointing to heavenly things. Uh, God on the throne, Christ and the Lamb, all the creatures that are around. You know, the the visions of God on the throne are the same in the Old Testament as in the. Uh, John's revelation in the New Testament. The the point being here, all those things were always pointing to Christ. So, yes, it is a, a, a test and a proof and a revealing of the effects of the fall, but Paul even talks about in Romans 7 the fact that the, the law, uh, it, it revealed how bad we were. It, it, it could never save. It, it never had the means of salvation in it from the beginning, from Moses' moment. No one could obey the law and and. and uh, no one could obey the law into salvation. So it's like the entire Abraham forward through the prophets is showing and displaying the need for Jesus Christ. And Paul even and goes the further with the, the law. Sp- the Spirit of God. Paul even goes further with the law to say, 
it was it came about so that trespass would increase. Yeah, and they, that's that would bring people, you know, to ask Paul, like, so do you mean the law is evil? Do you mean the law is bad? And right, and Paul's answering these rhetorical questions, which he's a he's a genius. I mean, yeah. he I don't know if if these are actual questions that he got from the Romans. It seems like he just knew this is the line of questions that are coming. His rhetorical line of questions are. It's like the spirit was inspiring him yeah. to write that book. It's it's fascinating. It's <laughs> um, but somebody should really write a book about that. Uh, <laughs> the the question the more so um, there's a guy named Roger Olson who wrote a book called Armenian Theology: Myths and Realities. Armenian and theology being the, basically the exact opposite of Tulip, essentially the exact opposite of Calvinism. That's right, and he's writing a book that's kind of confronting Calvinism, but he also wrote uh, in a little uh, book series, uh, he wrote Against Calvinism, and then there's a guy named Michael Horton who wrote For Calvinism, and they kind of exchange and and talk to each other. I found it to be helpful and insightful. But the main thing I found reading Roger Olson on Arminian theology, as as it's seen and understood today, is in my view, it comes across as Pelagian or at least semi-Pelagian. And for anyone who's tracking, that just means that they actually believe that the agency to kind of pull yourself up out of the fall is in man, Mm -hmm. and that every person is kind of on their their own. Every person is standing before God, and, you know, Adam sinned, but I've got my my own sin. And we kind of forget Romans chapter 5, uh, Armenians have a hard time with Romans chapter 5 and how, uh, you know, all died because one sinned um, and the discussion of imputation, which not to say I've got it all figured out either. But the the point being, the question is not just, you know, does the Holy Spirit come and meet you when you hear the gospel and, and help you become a Christian? But fundamentally, what has sin done? What has, what has sin brought us to and what is our actual state as sinners now. Yeah, so and if, if you think about, if you think then about the Old Testament prophets and the passage that I just read from Jeremiah, if this is the extent of what sin has done in the heart of the nation of Israel as a test case, then what is God's solution to it but to actually invade their life and change their heart? And it's that mm-hmm. turning, it's that change of heart that he gives to them that actually is the initiator to you hearing mm-hmm. the gospel and believing it. So when somebody says to me, uh-huh. well, I heard the gospel and I believed it, I say, yeah, you did. Absolutely you did. And I don't disagree with that. But yeah. I would back up one step and say there's something that happened before that that was God's doing and uh-huh. God's doing alone that opened your ears right. to the gospel. Yeah. And that I think what you're saying is earlier what we're helpful. Right, and I think what you were saying earlier was helpful. It's not just about a few punch passages in the New Testament. Right. Well, what about, you know, you were chosen before the foundation of the earth in Ephesians chapter 1. What about that? No, no, no. The entire Old Testament is a multi-thousand-year-old, in-covenant-with-God revelation that man cannot obey and have faith in God without God's help. Right. Without, Without God actually changing his heart. And right. the reality then is, if there's anyone in hell, he has not changed their heart. 
Uh, the only mm-hmm. reason he can say, you're of your father, the devil, it's Jesus to the Pharisees, mm-hmm. you're of your father, the devil, mm-hmm. is because mm-hmm. he is not going to change their heart. They are not his. Right. They never have been right. his. And so, yes, the, the, the passages in Ephesians 1, several, come, come into play and help us to understand, well, there's chosen before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. So Mm -hmm. we know from Ephesians the explanation for that differentiator that Jesus gives. You Pharisees are of your father the devil. These are my people. He came to save his people from their sins. Not all people from their Mm -hmm. sins, but his people from their sins. Mm -hmm. Those two... uh, Groups stand apart in Jesus's parables. The the wheat and the tares, they're going to grow up together, and then I'll separate them at the end. You know, how are those two people, how do, how do we understand those two people? Well, Paul helps us understand that in Ephesians 1, how those two are distinct. God chose mm-hmm. us in him before the foundation of the world. We should hold him and blameless before him in love. So, mm-hmm. but then you also have the New Testament writers, all of this sort of infuses their understanding of how one comes to salvation. John's gospel is chock full of it. Luke is chock full of it. In Acts, I'm thinking of one verse in Acts, in Acts 13, 48, when he's talking about Paul preaching to the Gentiles. And uh, he says, you know, the Lord commanded us saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. There again, um, uh, He's quoting from Isaiah, and Mm -hmm. he says in 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Mm -hmm. Appointed by whom? Well, that's what we're describing, and that's what the, the new covenant in is described in the prophets in the old testament is actually anticipating that god uh invades the hearts of his children and gives replaces their heart of stone with a heart of flesh and at the Mm -hmm. point where he does that they hear that gospel that happens at the hearing of the gospel they he they believe and so Mm -hmm. he's saying that those who are appointed to eternal life whose hearts were replaced with a heart of flesh, with his spirit that he puts within them, they turn and believe. So it's an act that God initiates. That's basically mm-hmm. the premise of all that Calvinism is arguing. It's that we, right. yes, we we cannot read the Old Testament. We cannot obey the law in and of ourselves. It's, it's impossible. We cannot obey God. The only way we can obey God is if he, by, his, by putting his spirit within us, enables us to obey. That's that's it. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. when we do that, we come to believe and we profess faith in Christ. And as many as are appointed to eternal life believe. In other words, those who are not appointed to eternal life did not believe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So he, he's— Yeah, and I think yeah. when, you, when you put it in biblical terms like that, my experience has been that people cannot deny them and joyfully accept them. Yeah. So if you just walk through Tulip and just— and just use the the common biblical, very simple, basic understanding, and say, "Would you, would you believe that we are dead in our sin, that we are blind, and we, um, we are, I don't want to say totally. I was almost, I was going to say totally depraved, <laughs> but, yeah. but do you do you believe that we are dead in our sin, that we cannot have faith on our own without God's 
without God's help. Can I even obey God without God's help? Yes. Okay, just agreed to total depravity. Uh, would you believe that anything that God does to help us, anything God does by his spirit to help us have faith and to help us believe is totally unconditional, that God is doing this out of his love and out of his sovereign choice, that no one man deserves it versus another, that it's called grace. Do you believe that? Yeah. Okay, that's unconditional election. right? And we can just go down the line. Do you believe that the gospel, that Jesus' blood, is that this is only going to be applied to those who have faith in Jesus? That Jesus died for the whole world, but let your mind be confused if you need for a moment. Obviously, there's going to be an application of that blood only to some who are in heaven forever. Would you agree that there's a limit to it? Yeah. So if you just talk through those lines, I think most of the people I've talked to over time, they agree with those things. But you get, you, get, you get tripped up on Calvinism and what you've heard about it out in the world, uh, what you read about it in some blog, uh, all the, the horror stories of the uh, rude, rage cage Calvinists who love Calvinism more than they love the gospel. Right. And at the, the root of historical Calvinism is just a belief and an understanding of the gospel that, that comes from God's word. And I've, I just found so many times that when you, you put it in those terms— People tend to go, yeah, that, that makes sense. I don't know what else you would believe. <laughs> and it's like, you're Calvinist. You didn't even know it, yeah. right? Um, because it it's, it's, it's the, it is the new covenant. Yes. It's not just a few verse, a few battle verses, like you said in the New Testament. It's, 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 the, it's how God was fixing all the things that the, uh, the old covenant uh, couldn't do and exposed it, it couldn't do in mankind. So I, I think it just kind of, brings up another point for me that what is in the heart of Calvinism is not a cold um, kind of, you know, well, let's have a theology conversation, and this is my theological choice, but it really sets the soul into a humble, grateful, uh, overwhelmed by God's love and sovereignty it, it puts us in a place where we are amazed and we are blown away and come to fall down in worship because we are so taken by God's absolute right and his sovereignty to do whatever he wills with his creation, with his beings. And he is good and right and just to send every person that he has created and that has rejected him and turned against him in sin, he would be just to save none of us, that none of us deserve salvation. And now we start talking about my affection for the Lord, yeah, my love and gratefulness that this is where the Lord has placed me in his sovereign plan. And not to say that uh, some of the different theology can't be grateful to God, uh, and can't have thanks to God, uh, not to belittle anyone. But when you start getting down into the roots of, I was dead and he pulled me up and saved me. I mean, there's our affection for the Lord and our apathy for the Lord. Our um, apathy about obedience to the Lord. Our, our apathy about salvation and gratefulness. I, I just found over and over there is an endless source of gratefulness and love and devotion to the Lord when you consider your salvation as uh, solely by grace through faith, as God's unconditional election, as 
the you know as as knowing that I will be helped by the Spirit, that the seal of the Spirit to persevere and to help. It's just an endless source of encouragement. Yeah, this is the this is I think the the point, and I think this is you know as far as our preaching, our teaching, everything we would ever want out of our theology is bubbling up to is how does this actually affect our worship that's mm-hmm. i think the the you know the crux of the matter and mm-hmm. it, and so like if he, i think ephesians has so many places where it captures this very thought so like you know just after the verses that we read a minute ago um he chose us in him i mean just go through ephesians 1 particularly verses 3 to 14 and just count all the in hymns and look at mm-hmm. what he says about it. Uh, he chose us in him. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So you have the the Holy Spirit in him too. Then uh, after that, he, he says uh, in chapter 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, when we read those passages like that, that should point us to bring us to a point of worship where we go, I don't, I don't know why he saved me. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't mm-hmm. really have anything in me that was savable, that was worth mm-hmm. being saved. Mm-hmm. And yet he graciously lavished upon me the riches of salvation in Christ. Mm-hmm. And and so then what am I to do? Well, what do you do mm-hmm. when someone is abundantly generous to you? You thank them, right? I mean, so like mm-hmm. a, to one degree, our worship is just an attitude of thanksgiving for what he has done for us in Christ. And I say this from time to time from the pulpit on, on Sunday when we start the worship services. Listen, here's what this is what we're here for. We are here mm-hmm. because we've been bought by the blood of Christ and we're coming, you know, to say thank you. Mm-hmm. To worship the one who saved us, who out of his yeah. grace reached down and redeemed us. He didn't have to, but he did. Mm-hmm. And he put his spirit within me so that I might believe and be saved. 
Mm-hmm. That's essentially what yeah. Calvinism is coming down to. God did this for you, mm-hmm. and, and you didn't contribute anything but the sin it took to ne- that made it necessary to be saved. Mm-hmm. And and yet He just graciously gave it to you, and you you you're left with the thought, well, well, then what does that mean for me? Like, wh- why did He do that? And and I don't know that there's a great answer for that, other than He wanted to. It was wise. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and going you going through Ephesians one, there's another layer to to just kind of bring out that he begins by blessing God, who has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, and that he does this verse six to the praise of his glorious grace, and then we are uh, sealed by the Holy Spirit the first to hope in Christ, to the praise of his glory. And then we are guaranteed an inheritance eternally with Christ, having hope until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And so just a fundamental question we ought to ask ourselves is, does my theology of salvation, does my understanding of how I was saved, lead me to praise God for his glorious grace? Or does it lead me to a thankfulness that I made the right decision? Right. And that's not to exclude man's responsibility in salvation. I think one of the ways I've heard Piper explain it before, which I think is helpful, and he admits that there's this there's this little center ball of uh, how man's responsibility and God's sovereignty works inside the heart of every man. And right inside that little ball, there's man's responsibility and there's God's sovereignty and there's a little scope inside that ball that we, we can't peer into, we can't yep. look into. There's, there is a mysterious aspect to this. But when Paul teaches the church about the nature of salvation, how God did it and what he did, it leads to the praise and the glory of God for his grace. Even that passage you read in Ephesians 2, it always blows me away hearing it. It was just a joy again. He created us in Christ Jesus. I mean, what a word, right? You, we, he made something. I mean, how much, how much more sovereign do you get mm-hmm. than I, I, I created something? Like he's creating a new creation. Like, like, he's, like, like Paul's reading Isaiah or something. Mm-hmm. And you just you come out of this, and if you're reading your Bible, you, you have to ignore your Bible and avoid your Bible and, and avoid what Paul says about salvation just in that chapter to get to a place where you're just not thankful to God and you're confident that you've made kind of the, the right choice, that you've, you've picked the right religion here, that, that you're one of the faithful. That disposition is unbiblical. Well, yeah, it is, it, it, and, and it, it's, also, it's also really terrifying because uh-huh. you know, if, if your salvation was a product of your choice— then you're, you can unchoose it. And with all of the stuff that's going on in your life, the ups and the downs and things like that, what confidence do you have that God is going to keep you? Mm-hmm. Well, you can't really have confidence that he's going to keep you because it's, it's your choice to jump in. It's your choice to jump out. Mm-hmm. And yeah. some people, like Baptists, I think have the most. Some Southern Baptists, like in the in the kind of modern era, have some of the worst theology in accord in 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 you know when it comes to this, because 
they'll they'll say, well, we jump in to salvation by our by our choice, but then once saved, always saved. God kind of somehow honors that choice all the way to the end. We could live like hell for the rest of our lives, but He's going to honor that choice mm-hmm. to the end. And I think that's mm-hmm. completely illogical and makes a shipwreck of all of Scripture. Mm-hmm. It, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. Perseverance of the mm-hmm. saints is different than that. Perseverance of the saints says God was the initiator of our salvation, and what he began, he is going to finish. Right. So I believe that if he gave me his spirit and caused me to, be, to hear the gospel and believe, that he is also going to bring about my salvation to its conclusion. So that I'm going to wake up tomorrow a Christian, and the next mm-hmm. day a Christian, and the day after that a Christian, is his doing, not mine. Mm-hmm. That he is going to cause his saints to persevere to the end. Doesn't mean we're not going to mm-hmm. sin. Doesn't mean we're not going to have bouts or seasons, even long extended seasons that are right. struggling through faith or any of those kinds of things. We've covered those in depth, I think, through this and, mm-hmm. and talked a lot about different things like that and struggles and 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 stuff. So it's not like that's not going to happen. But what mm-hmm. I know about those things is that the suffering of this present world is going to bring about a conclusion uh, that that leaves me a Christian in the end. And mm-hmm. I think Romans 8 is a perfect example of that, where he starts in you know Romans 8, 18, where he starts talking about suffering. I consider that the suffering mm-hmm. of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. The suffering that he's going through is is you know and versus the the salvation that's coming in the end when he dies basically is you know, makes the suffering of this present world worth it. But then he he mm-hmm. says about all of these things that all of these things are working together for good, not necessarily mm-hmm. that the firing from your job is going to get you a new job. Or it's going to get mm-hmm. you a job of higher uh, with a higher salary. No, mm-hmm. you may be fired, and then you may get cancer, and then you may lead to a two-year-long battle with pancreatic cancer before you die. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. promise you that you're going to get the new job. What he's saying is that all of the the suffering that I endure is bringing about the ultimate good of my. Uh, being conformed into the image of Christ. He says, um, all things work together for good, uh, uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and this is the key, to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the trust that Paul has is that this suffering is actually producing the greater glory that's coming that would have me with Christ forever and conformed into his image. And that he's using the suffering to produce that in me. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it, it's a testimony to the what God began in the beginning He's going to see it to completion. He's going to finish it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me, yeah, that verse 19 is incredible. The creation awaits for the, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Yeah. That it's uh, looking forward to that final culmination where those who are, 
are in God are made known and clarified as such forever. Yeah. Um, it inspires our worship. Yeah, what would you say to someone who comes to you and just says, hey, man, I've heard about this Calvinism stuff, and there's wacky stuff out there. I mean, just, I think we kind of already said it, but what would just kind of be your, your, your simple go-to answer? Hey, Pastor Michael, what about, what about Calvinism? Like, what do, you, what do you think about that? Sounds crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think kind of what we've, we've been going at, I think the first place to start is where did your salvation begin? Mm-hmm. And what did you bring to the table? And I think mm-hmm. when we uncover that in the scriptures, where did your salvation begin? The scriptures are adamant. God began your salvation. Not just mm-hmm. by sending Christ to die. He began your salvation by changing your heart so that you might actually mm-hmm. believe, hear, believe, and obey. Because before then, you couldn't. So mm-hmm. God had to do something to you. Has he done that to everyone? If he puts his spirit within someone, changes their heart, are they going to Mm -hmm. live a complete life of disobedience and complete and utter neglect of that spirit? No. Mm -hmm. They're going to obey. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, he says. So then with faith, it is possible to please God. So at the point where he changes your heart, then it's possible to please God. It's possible Mm -hmm. to obey. But he has to do that first. So if your salvation mm-hmm. began with him, it didn't begin with you, who's the one that chooses? Is it you mm-hmm. or is it God? Sounds mm-hmm. like it's God. And the Bible is is orienting our salvation with God's choice rather than yours. So I think that begins it all. And I think from there yeah. it's just a it's a, a cascading effect through the scriptures where you, you just sort of realize, you know, every domino of your, you know, my choice theology is falling at every right. page of scripture. Yeah, and I, w- I would go back as well and just, you know, begin with two two presuppositions. One is ask them, do you th- do you think that we're free? Right? I think uh one understanding of salvation isn't doesn't begin with an understanding of salvation, it begins with an understanding of um wh- wh- what is our state? Are we totally free beings or are we enslaved to sin? Can we not but sin as sinners in the fall? And you know, a lot yeah, of people that come into that conversation and go, how can you possibly say God is the one that chooses when we're free? Well, we're not free. We're not free like you think you're free. My my illustration I use all the time is, um, you know, is an elephant free to go where he wants and does what he wants? Yeah, sure, absolutely he is. Is an elephant free to become a tiger? No. No, he's not free like that. Am I free to go wherever I want and do whatever I want? Yeah. Am, am I am I free to fly up into the sky? No. Am I free to become another, you know, a extraterrestrial being or something? I, no, I'm not. I'm I'm not free totally like that. Was well, and that's I think Luther's example of like the bondage of the will. It's like prisoners inside of a prison. They're free to go to the right. playground or the the yep. yard, or they're free to go to the the chow hall, or they're free to go to right. various places. But at the end of the day, they're still prisoners. They're locked within a, a prison yard. Exactly. And I, I go back to say that's what happened in Genesis. Adam and Eve are free. I mean, they were free, free, free. Here, here are the two trees. You can choose the knowledge of good and evil, yep. or you can choose to obey God, and they chose sin. 
and mankind was plunged into sinfulness. Mankind as a race. Prison. All of us. Yep. Plunged into inability uh, on our on our own. So no, we're not free. That's the problem. We're not free. And that that biblic that that basic understanding of of our agency is the, is a fundamental problem to understanding what the Bible means by grace and salvation and the the, the work of the the Spirit of God. Yeah, and then and, and well, right then on the the question then is well, when Christ yeah. saved us, did he just cut a hole in the fence of the prison, or did he actually take some out? Right, and uh, and you know yeah. I mean when Paul says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, it kind of leads you to believe that he actually took some out. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed, it, it, he, he took mm-hmm. them out. When he says it is finished on the cross, he, he's taking them out. Not, yeah. he just cut a hole in the fence. Yeah. And the, so that's where I would begin is, what do you mean by human freedom? Yeah. Right? Because so often that's what, that's, people don't, they can't go into anything Calvinistic because they already think, they're already living on the basis that we're all totally free. Right. And salvation has to protect that somehow. Yeah. And I just what's, think it's a false presupposition. And what's interesting about that, too, that question, is that if you said, if they said, well, you know, I am free, and then you pose to them a situation where God desires one thing to happen and you desire another thing, a complete opposite thing to happen, who wins? Well, you have to come to the conclusion that God's going to win that battle. Right. In which case, you're not the free one. He is. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and um, I think yeah. it's C.S. Lewis who said, you, if if you think you can stop sinning, you probably have not tried very hard. <laughs> and so, but on the flip side of that— I can quit any time I the, want to, Nathan. Right, yeah. The flip side of that is the, sovereign, the sovereignty of God. So I'm, I'm free is one position, one presupposition. The other presupposition is God is— um, God kind of owes us freedom, yeah, and that's part of God's relationship to us, right? And I'm like, wow, what we? God has every right, yeah, to every atom and speck of dust and soul that He has brought into existence. And the best illustration, the best kind of pure, blunt language for that, and there's, I mean, you go through the Old Testament, you can find it everywhere, but the most helpful often is Romans chapter nine, where he is working through the relationship between uh, Israel and uh, the Gentiles, uh, between Jacob and Esau, between um, Isaac and Ishmael. And, and a lot of people will say, well, Romans 9 through 11 is really about the Jew-Gentile choices and those kinds of things, not about in- individual election. There's multiple reasons I would say I don't think that's the case. But either way, Paul's theological point is very clear about God's nature. Before you even begin to apply it to what God does in his particular plan with individuals or groups of people or anything like that, Paul says something about God's nature that has to be our fundamental category for how God works with people. So when Paul says, you know, hey, not everyone who's Israel is Israel, God chooses whoever he wants. Remember Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob, you know, Esau was... The older one, but God chose Jacob instead to continue the the covenants and the promises. So the question is going to be, and this is the I'm so thankful for Paul because he knows it's like he's talking to uh, modern Americans. So you're going to tell me there's an injustice in God, right? God's not just; He just kind of randomly chooses people. And Paul says, by no means. He says to Moses, 
I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'm God. I'll do whatever I want to do. So then it depends not on human will. It doesn't depend on your exertion, Mm. but it depends on God who has mercy. Mm. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you Mm. and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why did God raise, first of all, God raised Pharaoh. Mm. Second of all, why? So that he could show his power on the earth. And then Paul's theological conclusion about God, not even just... Not even just his application yet, but just the theological conclusion about God. Paul's conclusion is, so then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Mm-hmm. So when, we're th- when we jump into Cal, the presuppositions that most modern Christians bring in America, in my experience, is we're free, and God has given us that freedom and he's not stepping in. He doesn't have the right to do that because of the world that he's created, which is deistic at its deepest roots, I think. Yep, so when you, when you begin to just challenge those two things, are we really free? And, is, and really the question, the question becomes then, who's free? You or God? Yeah. I mean, who's really free, free, free? Yeah. You or God? Yeah. Well, God is. Okay. And, you, and That's what's at the root. In that very same passage, you're described as clay, and he's described as a potter, which I think comes from uh-huh. Jeremiah. But yep. But which, you know, which one of those two is free? Is the potter or is the clay uh-huh. free? You know? And uh-huh. so it just seems like at every turn, the pages of Scripture are going, where do you get that notion? You're, I'm yep. not telling you that. No one's telling you that. Yep. The, the Bible I mean, is and it gets, orienting it gets crazy. with God. It gets crazy in Romans 9. Yes. So just to follow up here, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, uh, is that in your yeah. category of freedom and right? Raised what if God up vessels wanted to for destruction. show his yeah. wrath <laughs> in order to make known his power, endured patience, endured with much patience, vessels prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, all which he prepared beforehand. Yeah. And when Paul says, what if, reading through Romans, Paul's not saying, you know, let's think about some possibilities. Yeah. Maybe God's like this. Maybe, No, no, no. Paul's saying, listen, what if God's like something you could never think he was like? Yeah. And, and, and the wink and the nod is, hey, that's what God's like. Yeah. <laughs> that's, what I'm, that's what I'm arguing in yeah. Romans 8, 9, 10, 11. Well, this is what God's it, actually his like. Whole, his whole you know, potter and clay analogy is, yeah, I mean, go back to Jeremiah 18. It's, it's right there. Like he, he basically describes Israel in the same way. I'm the potter, you're the clay. I can make, you, make of you whatever I want. And Paul builds his argument based on that same, I think the same reasoning from Jeremiah 18. He doesn't tell you that's where he's going, but I think that's what he's referencing. And... Mm-hmm. Um, and I said that, but it could be Jeremiah 19 now that I think about it. But but the point is, he's uh, I think he's going back there, and it's, it's saying the same thing. It's reiterating the same thing. This is, you know, you're mm-hmm. the vessel that I'm creating, and I'm doing it for my, my purposes to bring forth salvation to the end of the earth. And when we see, you know, the, the servant in Isaiah rise up, he is going to be the one that brings salvation to the ends of the earth, and it's going to be to the people that, um, according to his purpose— in election, he has placed in that servant, in Christ, before the foundation of mm-hmm. the world. Meaning, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the shorthand before the foundation of the world is like a shorthand for before anybody could ever choose or 
God could ever be influenced possibly by anyone's decision. Like that, that's kind of the shorthand mm-hmm. for saying that. Like in other words, you mm-hmm. had nothing to do with it. Um, it was completely of God's choosing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> just as we're talking about, it, it's just like, isn't it just amazing that anyone's a Christian? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just anybody. Yeah. It's, you just think about the fact that I'm a Christian. I think it's this easy. I grew up in the church, grew up pastor's son. I've been ministering in the church. It is so easy just to think being a Christian is just kind of normal. Oh, my goodness. Just what it means. Yeah. To even be a Christian. Yeah. It's, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's unfathomable just to consider where I am in God's plan and what God has done. And yeah, and if God hardens whom he wills, and you just think about the fact that God had no reason whatsoever to have any business making me a Christian. Yeah. And making me saved from my sin and giving me the spirit of God. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh man. It it changes it changes everything about the way we, we parent. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Andrea and I, we've told the kids a number of times that we can tell you the gospel. We are going to read the Bible together. You know, every morning we do family worship and, and, you know, wake up, we sing, we pray, we read the scriptures at the breakfast table. And, um, and I tell them regularly, look, I can, I can tell this to you. I can share this with you. I can't control mm-hmm. whether you believe it or not. Um, it is mm-hmm. God's spirit that opens your ears to hear and your eyes to see and gives you the heart to obey it. Um, you know, so I can't control that, but I will continue to pray for you. You can pray for you. You can ask the Lord, you know, to give you uh, eyes to see, ears to hear um, what he's telling you and, and a heart to obey it. And, I, I, you know, so we it changes our, our way we parent. It changes our evangelism. Like these kids are in the Lord's hands, not mine. You know, I'm required mm-hmm. to, to, to tell them to not hide the gospel from them, to raise them in fear and admonition of the Lord. I'm required to tell them the gospel and preach it and share it. But ultimately, I can't control whether they believe it or not. I can't save my kids, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And and what I'm looking maybe there's for, an episode down the road on evangelism and sovereignty. Yeah, we definitely. I mean, election. it does bring up questions. What does that do to our parenting? What about evangelism? How do we evangelize? And we could even pick yeah. that up next week, but. How do yeah. we how do we avoid fatalism? Yeah, how do yeah like exactly? Well, then yeah. you know everything. Everybody. Well, then it just it's all sealed, and who cares? And prayers don't right. matter, and and yeah. you know all kinds of situations that that brings up that I think um, are helpful to explore. But you know it it should change. It changes the way how concerned we are about the future, and how nervous mm-hmm. we get and anxious we get about the things of the present. Like, I'm mm-hmm. so guilty of looking not further than the end of my nose and thinking, well, you know, kind of getting in those kind of pity party, woe is me kind of scenarios or getting anxious and nervous about things that are coming in the future. And I have to remind myself, look, if this is in this, the hand, the sovereign hand of God and that any suffering that comes my way is bringing about my conforming into the, his conforming of me into the image of Christ, what do I have to be worried about? You know, what do I have to be afraid of? It, mm-hmm. it means that I don't have to be afraid of anything. Now, I am afraid, mm-hmm. sinfully afraid of things, but mm-hmm. it's there's a constant reminder. You have nothing to fear. 
everything is bringing about your salvation. And, you know, that's a really comforting feeling. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So makes me think about the song, He Will Hold Me Fast, and how it's not, mm. it's not just kind of a romantic version of, oh, God cares. It, there's, when I sing that, when I hear it, the first time I heard it, it, it put these things together. These things came together in a song. Right, that he's the he's the holder. It's not just that God does some really, you know, nice things for us, and oh, we're safe with Him. But in every way that there is to be held, it's it's up to Him sovereignly, right? I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. My love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Yeah, it's a pro- it's a proclamation of those things we've been discussing. Amen. So, uh, what a what a sweet hope. Yeah. Amen. Awesome. And see you next week. All right. Thanks for listening to the Fire and Bones podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing or following the show on your favorite listening platform so you can be notified every time a new episode is released. Consider leaving us a generous review if that's an option for you. And most importantly, share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it. Be sure to check the show notes for any relevant links, including our contact information. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions you might have. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Fire and Bones podcast.